you're running for a seat that could decide the balance of power in Washington. What qualifies you to be a U.S. Senator? You have 60 seconds. Hi. Good night, everybody. We are now entering the home stretch ahead of the midterm elections. For months, political analysts have said a red wave is coming. A referendum on inflation, illegal immigration, indoctrination. How are Democrats mitigating that red wave? It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. You and I have a rendezvous with us. Welcome. Welcome. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Hi, good night, everybody. That'll wrap our show. Thanks for tuning in to Ruthless. Oh, my God. I can't get enough of it. Uh, Welcome to the Ruthless Variety Program on a big Thursday. Uh, That was John Fetterman in Tuesday's debate, if you missed it. Boy, oh, boy. I mean, that's how you open a debate. (laughs) Listen, folks, I'm completely capable. Let me begin by saying hi. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Let me say with 100% assurance that if he actually would have left the stage after the good night, everybody, it would have been a better thing. He would have been far better than what ended up happening. Yeah, totally. I mean, it would have been a lot better. Uh, We're going to cover that in a whole bunch more on a big variety program. Uh, we got a great guest today. We talked about him a little bit on Tuesday when we were talking about the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee mm-hmm. in New York himself, himself being in grave electoral danger this fall. And the reason for that is a guy by the name of Mike Lawler in New York. Great outstanding, name. Outstanding candidate. Great guy. A great guy, great candidate. And he is, I think, might even be leading at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I, like it can't be emphasized enough. This is the head of the D trip. Like yeah. Sean Patrick Maloney has been pulling money from other Democrat candidates. Frontline Democrat candidates. Yeah. To save yeah. his own skin. He, courteous enough to give some of them a heads up, apparently, according to reporting. But imagine that call. Hey, by the way, I know I know you guys elected me to be the captain that goes down with the ship, but I just want to let you know I'm tossing you overboard yeah, yeah. <laughs> and giving myself a life raft. It's unreal. <laughs> not a great not a great look. Wait till, uh, he's, wait till he's in there trying to lobby these guys next year. It's yeah. just such a perfect cherry on top, right? I want majorities in the House. I want majorities in the Senate. I want big majorities. But if you can take a campaign chairman You like out, a statement. Oh, that's just an yeah. exclamation point, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I love it. You love to see it. Anyway, Mike Lawler's with us today. Look forward to that. A big thank you to Megyn Kelly. Uh, We were on with her yesterday. She obviously suffered a a loss in her family Mm -hmm. this week with the the death of her sister, which obviously is tough on her and her crew. We wish all of them well. But, you know, she gets right back to work, and she knows that that what she does is important. All of us are, uh, you know, happy to be a part of it. God, we just love going on that show. And I think we had a great time yesterday. Oh, it's always a delight. I mean, every single time we go on, it's funny, it's fresh. I mean, she is the best. She Con- really is. Consummate pro, even given all the circumstances, totally. you know? Totally. And, you know, it's it's fun to be able to, like, lighten the mood and, and laugh even in times like that. Well, speaking of lightening the mood, she liked your beard. She did. She, she liked. She was a fan. This is why. This is why Duncan is pushing for us to get on video. Oh come on! He's like, well, you know, the Instagram likes aren't enough for my ego. <laughs> no, I need real time video. I want to see the real time thoughts come in. <laughs> Look, it's just another point of validation. 
<laughs> and I and I appreciate it, Megan. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly caught our attention. There's no question about that. Uh, let's get to some five stars. We haven't done these in a little bit. Um, I always like leading with the voice here. So, Ashbrook, can you uh, give us a shot? Well, this one's from Fahrenheit 533 called Best Political Podcast. I never miss the episodes of this fantastic political podcast. Keep up the good fight. Yeah, well, I'd love to hear it. Fahrenheit. Love it. Love it. Uh, Smug, what do we got here? So the next one is from Rachel Ray. This is on October 20th. It says, can I double the stars to 10? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Life has gotten so infuriating that I'm using four-syllable cuss words. I can relate. (laughs) My favorite lately starts with MF. I'm a 62-year-old woman. God bless you. Uh, Turns out what I really needed most was to laugh at the absurdity and lunacy of the left. These guys bring it. I love the games, animal news, and the straight-up calling out of the crazies. Keep it banging. Thank you so much. That's awesome, yeah. Rachel. Thank you for that. Uh, Duncan, you want the next one? Yeah, this is from B. Peterson. Smugs Biden big F and deal moment. Oh, excellent. Thursday's episode was fantastic with animal news about bear wrestling, a stellar interview with Michigan gubernatorial candidate, and of course, highlight the lunacy of Stacey Abrams. But the highlight for me was in the last second when Smug was off miking, celebrating. That was fuck. That was fucking golden. Hundred <laughs> percent. It was at the end of the episode. Yeah, yeah. After you done, you did the sign off. I mean, that was a great episode. <clears throat> Thank you for your show. My daughter messaged me yesterday that she listens while walking around the IU campus. Oh, I, look at that! You know, I went to IU. Go Hoosiers! There's a lot of relatability there. Oh, that's fantastic. Trying. This is making me really happy. Yeah, great review. I need to take a moment. Uh, um, sorry. Uh, walking around the IU campus trying to keep from laughing while surrounded by libs. That's that's that, great. Well, it's good wonderful. Fight. Just absolutely wonderful. So, all right. Without further ado, let's get into this mess that was the Tuesday debate in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The political world watched because of a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. right? One, I think it's more than conventional wisdom. It's an actual fact that control of the Senate is in all likelihood determined by the great state of Pennsylvania. It's looking like it. Right? And this whole race has been just super interesting. A very contentious Republican primary. Oz comes out of it. uh, And he's down like double digits to this guy Fetterman, who was basically inside all of the month of July and August because he had suffered a stroke right before the primary. Yeah. Right? And so, but, but we're assured Everything was fine. He had no difficulties with anything else. He wasn't impaired. I I think it was Jim Garrity on Twitter who points out this timeline is important because it was the stroke happens before the primary and the Fetterman campaign says uh, this is a minor hiccup. He's going to be back to normal in no time. Don't worry about this. Yeah, and it's important to recall also that Chuck Schumer and some of the more establishment Democrats in, in the Democratic Party actually recruited Connor Lamb, another congressman from a more moderate part of the state who'd won a swing district in multiple cycles, and that was the candidate that they wanted. Right. For for obvious reasons. Yeah, well, and even before, I mean, like, obviously you couldn't foresee this Well, right, yeah. But but Lamb was sort of a center-left, I mean, he votes with Nancy Pelosi, so what are you going to do? But, but... He was seen as more of a center-left candidate, whereas Fetterman is basically to the left of Bernie Sanders on everything. Yeah, 
complete, and, he, complete and, job. and as I've said many times, he looks like Shrek in basketball shorts. <laughs> right. With a unborn fetus attached to his neck. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely him. So anyway, uh, all of this happens and he does like some select interviews that appear, I don't know, kind of normal when you see the video. Turns out we had no idea how select these interviews actually were. Right. Right up until Dasha Burns of MSNBC had the audacity to go in and try to interview him and he didn't he couldn't understand anything she was saying. Nor could she understand anything he was saying. Right. And so they set up like a teleprompter for him and then he could sort of spit it out enough to get through an interview and then she had again the audacity to report her findings live on air. And right. then then you had this insane outrage from from the left from journalists being like how dare you say that this man is not completely normal you had these morons like Kara Swisher who were like uh maybe you're bad at small talk yeah yeah <laughs> maybe you're bad at small blaming talk blaming Dasha Burns for having like what they said was a partisan takeaway right she works for MSNBC by right. the way right and then you had uh who was the Stephanie Rule Stephanie, Stephanie Rule oh yeah another, boys the another worst another one of those <laughs> some real d3s <laughs> yeah. absolute worst yeah uh, what did she what did she do before she didn't she work at like an athletic company no she, she <laughs> I think she worked at a bank selling derivatives oh yeah oh okay. yeah right. no that's something, interesting I, I knew it was something like that yeah. anyway um these people just totally tried to cover this thing up so it all came down to the first live public performance for Fetterman in a head-to-head against Dr. Oz on Tuesday night uh, for the world to see. And you heard in our opener exactly how he started the debate. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, good night, everybody. <laughs> and wow. that definitely would have been the highlight had he walked off. It was painful to watch. That, that's now going to be my like Irish exit move. I'm like, hello, good night, everybody, and just dip. Like, thank you, Fetterman, for that. That's the only <laughs> positive thing to come out of this absolute disaster of a debate. Before we get into a couple of the clips, let me just read the reactions. This is from Axios. Capitol Hill's reaction to the Pennsylvania Senate debate was brutal for the Democratic nominee, John Fetterman, from Democrats and Republicans alike. Multiple sources wondered why Fetterman agreed to the debate when he was clearly not ready. Fetterman struggled at times to respond to the moderator's questions, even with the assistance of a closed captioning device. Why the hell did Fetterman agree to this? <laughs> One Democratic lawmaker. That's not even a staff. Lawmaker. Wow. How about that? And Fetterman backer told Axios, this will obviously raise more questions about than answers about John's health. I think that's so key. I think that's so key is you have a Democrat lawmaker who says, why the hell would he agree to this? Why the hell would he let voters know how dire his condition is when you've got early voting underway? Why can't you just keep this guy hidden, keep lying to voters that he, oh, well, the Fetterman is totally capable. The, the exact same guy who has a life-threatening stroke. We found out later it was life-threatening. That's what he said yeah. after previously calling it a hiccup. Just a hiccup, right? yeah. The same guy who has that happen to him and is afforded the opportunity to bow out gracefully and chooses not to. They had until August to pull his name off the ballot, and he was like, no, no, I'm good. It it makes you wonder after watching last night how much of that was his decision. I don't know. That's the thing. It's tough to speculate. It makes me feel terrible about it. Totally. But I don't feel that terrible because, again, they made the choice to be there. So without further ado, let's play the first. This is uh, about his doctor's note testifying to his own fitness 
And I believe that, again, my doctors, the real doctors that I believe in, they all believe that I'm ready to be served. Follow up. I didn't hear you say you would release your full medical records. Why not? You have 30 seconds. No, uh, again, my doctor all believes that I'm fit to be serving, and that's what I believe is where I'm standing. Okay. Is where I'm standing. <laughs> what the hell? Dr. L? Dr. Al? That would... First of all, the doctor is a campaign contributor. That's the thing. Is like yeah. this is this is a letter from a donor. So like so many journalists have referred to this as a medical document, which is absolutely not. So many journalists try to say this is some kind of like proof of his fitness. This is a donor. Yeah. This is a donor to his campaign saying like, yeah, I think he should run. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, like and and journalists cite this. Like, yeah, donor says he's he's good to go. Guys, like, I'm our work here is done, fellas. Pack it in. He's like, I'm twenty nine hundred bucks into this thing. You better make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but like again, not that is the one answer you assume you would be prepared for in the context of this debate. Not only was he not prepared for it, uh, apparently he is where he stands. Or he stands where he is. And, and, and again, or whatever the hell that was that he, that he said. I'm just impressed he's standing. I, I think, frankly, the, the thing is, is that this election, you know, this is the central issue, I think, at this point is, is Fetterman capable of serving? It, no. Should he be running, right? So, like, if you are his campaign and doing everything you can to make people believe he is fit to serve, why would you not release a medical report? And then if you if you are facing these calls from from so many people who are skeptical of his capabilities that like clearly this guy can't serve if you're if the media is debating this if and he is fit to serve why would you not want a medical report on the front page of every newspaper in this country and the reason is because he would not pass an actual medical exam it I, wouldn't happen I right. think that's I think that's true and you know look there's a lot of attacks from the left saying like you're ableist yeah. And oh you're being God. an ableist, which is, you know, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the term, it's basically making fun of or or denigrating people with disabilities. Now, what's an important point to remember is that John Fetterman at no point, including up to this day, has run as a candidate with a disability. Correct. He has not. In fact, to the contrary, what he has assured the people of Pennsylvania for multiple months when they could not see him is that there was no detrimental effects. You know, that's a great point. None. Right. If this guy said, look, I, I can't see, then of course every accommodation would have been made to make sure that he gets whatever he needs in terms of his sight in order to participate in these kind of things, mm-hmm. right? If he couldn't hear, same same goes. Mm-hmm. If he was in a wheelchair, we've had multiple senators in wheelchairs, no problem. Mm-hmm. That's not the problem. The problem is that they have assured people there's nothing that's happened here. Yep. And they've done interviews where journalists testify to the fact nothing has happened here. He is right as rain, right? Well, and, and, and then they allowed for a description of his condition as having an auditory processing issue. But how does that impact his inability to complete a sentence? Well, it's the opener, right? So if you're of an auditory processing disorder... It doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter what that moderator says. You have your elevator pitch already... You know, it's memorized. an opening statement, right. Right? right? So, so the auditory processing disorder, as I understand it, means that you cannot intake something that you're hearing, and you're able to sort of process that and speak to the right. answer. But you were going to you were going to say good evening, everyone, regardless of what the moderator said. Instead, you said good night. You said good night. I mean, 
that's not a product that that's no. not what that is right no. that's something else right anyway it goes on this is about an episode where he pulled a gun on an unarmed black man this has been in the center of this discussion both in the primary and in the general election against fetterman he does not have an answer. This is what he did uh, during the debate. Everybody in Braddock, uh, an overwhelmingly majority uh, community of, of black uh, community, all understood what happened. You know, they uh, they understood what happened, and everybody agreed that. And nobody believes that it was anything about me making a split second decision to to defend our community as well. Gobbledygook. There's four completed sentences in which he's removed half of the thoughts and he jumbled them all together. <laughs> which which I just I I don't know how he's going to do the job of senator during crosstalk at a committee hearing if this is the way he can communicate. I mean, the Senate's called like the world's greatest deliberative body. Does anyone believe that in his state, John Fetterman can go in there and help get a, a, a bill passed, get a deal done. It's comical. It's com- I can't believe the fact we have to fucking talk about it. It's insane. Like, I, I can't believe we actually have to analyze this and sit around and be like, D- can he do it? Can he not do it? Of course he can't fucking do he it. Absolutely can't. Listen to him. Listen to him. If you're living in Pennsylvania right now, and your livelihood depends on that dude negotiating with somebody across the aisle in order right. to convince them of something that's in your best interest. Where are you going to lay money on? That? Yeah, right. Pen- Pennsylvania is going to get hosed <laughs> in that deal. That's a bad deal. If, yeah. if it wasn't for the Dems and the media being so completely morally bankrupt and wanting to win at any cost, it would be clear to any human with any sort of compassion, this is an individual who needs to focus on recovery, not try to be an advocate for a community for the voters of Pennsylvania. It's beyond obvious. It's beyond obvious. Now, with the uh, millions of small businesses in Pennsylvania that have been put underwater by the Biden administration because of inflation and everything else, uh, the issue of minimum wage comes up. Listen to this dude on this. And whether it was a $50 tax break, you know, about his farm in Montgomery County. So it's about supporting and helping, you know, young earners, excuse me, young, young. uh, They gave him too much. What? Like his team gave him too much material. Well, he was trying to do the oppo thing, right? I know, but he was trying to get some attack in on Oz. And I'm sorry. I know that they don't want to admit it, but he's clearly got some memory issue. He can't put it all together. And they don't want to say aphasia or memory loss or anything like that. But clearly they gave him... The, the you know this is what you usually tell a candidate in this situation is use the first 10 seconds to pivot away from the part that you really don't want to talk about and redirect it at your opponent and say something negative about them then get back on your message and that's the way you're supposed to handle the question the debate but he can't memorize that line on Oz so you get a fragment of that attack and then just word salad they're trying to argue and create this term of like auditory processing when duncan's right this is a cognitive thing yeah he is incapable of it and now i've seen a lot of of reporting which has come out uh, over the past couple days where you look at uh the way that folks recover after a stroke and they say that the vast majority of recovery occurs within the first three months they say within six months, it's pretty settled about what the capabilities are going to start to look like. Yeah. And we're now at the six-month mark. I mean, look, beside the obvious, 
right? He also, the attack that he attempted to wage Mm -hmm. was an attack, best I could tell, on a farm that Dr. Oz owns in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. The chief critique of the Fetterman campaign is that he's not from Pennsylvania and doesn't have any connection to Pennsylvania. Like that, he's lobbying oppo that runs in direct contrast to the shit that his thesis statement is for his own campaign. Like this is, I mean, this is it goes way beyond not not being able to talk. That's yeah. the thing is, is this campaign on the merits of the issues that face Americans, that face people in Pennsylvania, they can't discuss that. Yes, if elected, John Fetterman would be a rubber stamp on the policies that Joe Biden and the Democrats in the Senate have gotten put into place that have crushed the middle class, that have made America crippled instead of being energy independent, of of skyrocketing inflation because they pass these stupid, stupid bills that just— Which, uh, by the way, he was critical of only because it didn't go far enough. That's the thing. And, and 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 they have to like not cover any of those actual issues, right? So they try to come up with this campaign. I mean, this guy, it, it's a joke of a campaign. Initially, it was just like, hey, we have we have a team of people online and they make a bunch of memes and, and all the reporters are like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Well, maybe they're having to do that because the candidate can't say any words. So the issue of inflation also came up. Did you guys hear what happened? Yeah, on let's take a listen to this. Where do you think spending should be cut? You have 60 seconds. No, here's what I think we have to fight about inflation here right now. That's what we need to fight about inflation. Okay. Well, well, I don't know if he's going to take the full 60 seconds to just process the question and then give us his answer, but that's what we're going to fight about? What do you mean that's what we're going to fight about? It makes he, no sense. He, what the hell is he talking about? We're going to fight about it. There's one candidate on the stage that has endorsed every single spending measure that Democrats have put before them, and his only critique is that they didn't spend enough. And there is another candidate that thinks you ought to go in a different direction. In the context of inflation, what the hell is there to fight about? If you're concerned about inflation, that's not a quite something to fight about at all. Like, that is just what it is. It's, it's one guy with a huge, huge political liability. But yeah, let's fight about it. We're happy to fight about it. But here's the one. This last one is the coup de grace. Yeah. This is about the issue of fracking. There is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Uh, I, I, I do support fracking and I don't I don't. I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. OK. Holy shit. I mean, that's there it is in a nutshell. I think that's it right there. And and I think if our media had any integrity left whatsoever, this farce would be over. This is this is an abomination that they are forcing his campaign, his wife are forcing this guy to go up there in this state when he is absolutely in no way able to serve in the capacity as a US senator. It's, a, it's actually an indictment on the media that Fetterman and the Democrats thought they could get away with this. That yeah, they would have enough cover from the media to be able to pull this off. Well, it's because, because there have we been, exa- what, three, four weeks of early voting? That's why they think they can get away with this. Yeah. We know exactly what they would be doing if this were a Republican candidate. Every single network would be camped out across the street from his office, yep. waiting for updates from the doctor, and, from and the shouting, press secretary. shouting every as you get hour. in the car, like, are you going to drop out? Are you going to drop out? Every hour, every time he moved, they would, they'd be camped out in front of the house. 
out of the doctor's office, a Republican would be treated so differently by this media. So before we get into the reaction to this, which is equally appalling in many ways, um, let's get into the fact that Dr. Oz never took the bait here. Yeah. Like this is... Huge credit. That was that was pretty much as flawlessly as you could have a debate. There are some, not on this variety program at all, but there were some who claimed that Oz was not a great candidate. We have always been huge fans of Oz on this program because we've met him because he came in here. We've met him. He's been on the show two times. We've been able to interact with him. We're huge believers in Oz and know that he's running for the right reasons and he's got just an incredible capability. He's always been a winner at everything that he's done. Like no reason to believe he would not be a winner in this however there were some questions right those questions have to be entirely dispelled yep. by this performance not just because of how he acquitted himself which was great he was he did everything he needed to do but the discipline that it takes mm-hmm. for a candidate to stand on stage next to that mess yeah next to that hot fire and and watch it like smolder into a burning garbage dump and then and and not take the bait you don't even make an observation about the fact that he can't complete fucking sentence. He, he stuck. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Oz stuck to policy and the issues that that matter to voters in Pennsylvania the entire debate. Every time he didn't, he didn't, he didn't take the bait at all. He didn't, he didn't look over at Oz when he'd have something like this and be like, I, I can't believe this just happened. He 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 stayed completely focused on what the voters in Pennsylvania care about, and 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 that's exactly what you have to do because. The Fetterman campaign was exposed in that debate of what it's become, of what they're doing, and and he let them expose themselves for what they are, and he maintained on his focus completely on issues. And that's, I think, the best way to take that. Well, I think, Duncan, you actually said something interesting on Megyn Kelly about this, in that it exposed Fetterman in multiple ways. Obvious, The obvious is the limitations. But also just the lack of candor and honesty about what he is and who he is and what he believes, right? right? Because Democrats, as they always do, like to take a position in terms of how they vote and how they exercise government and everything else. But then they go to the voters and claim that there's something else, right? right? It's nuanced. But because of his limitations. Right. He lost the ability to lie. He lost the ability to lie. Yeah. Right? I mean, your point was a yeah. good one. Yeah. I mean, it was basically like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, I do support, I don't support fracking, and I'm standing. It, I never supported fracking. Yeah. I always They literally, fracking. they read a quote of him to him, and he said, I always support fracking. Without disputing without, the premise. Without disputing it at all. They said, I never, I always. Uh-huh. Folks, that Venn diagram doesn't circle around. Like, right. that, that, those are two separate circles. And I would say to listeners in Pennsylvania or people who might have family in Pennsylvania, take that clip, that fracking clip, and send it to your friends and your family and say, you want this guy representing you in the Senate. But I have a feeling that that's going to be on everybody's television really soon. Yeah, I, it just has to be. Because this is, not everybody was able, I, you know, I talked to my mother-in-law who was living in, she lives outside of Philly. And she said because of her, she was in Comcast cable system, mm-hmm. they didn't carry the debate. Are you serious? They didn't carry the debate. They didn't carry it. And now, I mean, look, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why they didn't carry oh, the I, debate. I think, I think we know why. I've got some, I got some suspicions. I, I think we know why. And now they're going to be force-fed clips that are handpicked by the media 
to say that it was a fiery exchange over issues of abortion and minimum wage. Candidates clash. Exactly. (laughs) That's my favorite this morning. Candidate, if you call anything that we just played a clash, like you should be checked in next to Fetterman. Like that, there's nothing about a clash there. You have one guy who's self-immolating on stage. Yeah. Right? I feel terrible for him. If he wasn't in the context of lying to the people of Pennsylvania and put him, himself in the position of having to try to deceive them for their vote, I would feel terrible for this and guy. And that's the thing is these journals are so pot committed to lying in their obfuscation that like none of them are willing to retract their attacks on, on the MSNBC reporter for being like, I don't think Fetterman was all the way there. They're like, oh, she can't do small talk. Like uh, a friend of the program, Matt Whitlock, went after Kara Swisher and was like, do you want to take back what you said like uh, on her tweet from like October 11th where you said that Fetterman is a totally normal, capable dude? I think this debate kind of proves you're wrong. And she was like, nope, I don't regret it, not one bit. And that's the thing is like <laughs> right. these Shameless people liars. are supposed to be like the guardians of truth and 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 honest reporters and 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 let folks know what's going on. You know the whole thing of uh, you want to afflict the comfortable, bring comfort to the afflicted, and they're like, no, I'm going to make sure that people who did not see that debate are told that he was just fine. It's incredible. It's incredible. So if you have a debate performance like that, clearly you need to blame somebody. Can't blame the candidate. You got two weeks before an election. You got to blame somebody. So they, what they come up with was that it was a delayed caption, right? Or there was something wrong with the closed caption system. Ashbrook, you raised this issue that I think entirely undercuts that claim from them. Yeah, so before the debate, the Fetterman press team wanted to show the media the Oz team, everybody exactly how the caption system was going to work because they were so proud of what they had negotiated. And the Oz team uh, declined to allow the press to look at the way the caption system looked. And the Fetterman team raised this as like, oh, well, th- this system is good and the Oz team's trying to stop stop people from seeing how well it will work. And in rea- so in reality, they were very proud of the system that was that was about to help and the reason that they were so proud of it and they wanted to show journalists is because they were afraid that the oz camp would try to undercut their candidate's performance in the debate by saying yeah he required assistance from closed captioning he was able to read all this stuff it's not like it wasn't a live debate like so they were very concerned about the attacks so they try to preempt that by saying this system is gold this system is as good as it gets come in take a look you'll all find how great it is. And then immediately it goes terrible and they're like, this system sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, never liked it. (laughs) So there was a statement from the people who put on the debate who had to to address this. And basically the sum and substance of it is like we, we let fetterman do like run-throughs he only chose to do it once we, we yeah dress rehearsal yeah. multiple times for him to go through his team wanted adjustments late in the game we made adjustments late in the game and and effectively what they said is that everybody was very very happy about the way that it operated prior to the debate and it operated the exact same way during the debate yeah. so i mean look don't take our word for it like take the company that put it on for it. Like this, this seems like a very unbiased observer here, right? I mean, yeah, no question. So anyway, the, the, how does the media cover this thing? Washington Post for Fetterman contentious exchanges, oh. verbal struggles in debate with Oz. Oh, mm-hmm. 
you wouldn't know there was anything off about this debate. Did you did you did you guys find a, con- a contentious exchange? I didn't find one exchange. No. no. I, I I during Oz's closing, Fetterman he shouted sh- out stuff. He, he screamed out Mastriano, who's the governor's uh, candidate there, who he wants to link Oz to. Yeah. But he just screamed out his name in the middle of his Which is closing wild. state. wild. I mean, like, think about that. It is Oz is giving his, like, normal, like, closing <laughs> statement, and this guy just screams Mastriano. And everyone, you know, like, everyone's, like, totally normal. Which I think is an Italian racial slur, isn't it? <laughs> Smug. <laughs> <laughs> but like think about that the guy just like he's now shouting words you know and like alright calm down it's just don't get violent like wow here's Cheryl Stolberg is she at the New York Times still uh-huh. so this is clearly a format that favors Oz you, what do you mean the fact that they're on stage with microphones <laughs> what, what's the format what's the I don't understand how you could change a format sure. how, there's nothing you could do about a format right. that would change how easy it is to have one person ask you a question. Like, I'll give you a tough, you know what a tough format would be? Is if you could do like a Lincoln Douglas. Right. Where somebody gave, you give a question, you give a response, and then your opponent challenges your assumptions. That would be a tough format for that guy. I think by tough format, they mean answering to the voters. (laughs) Because the media, the media and the Democrats really hoped that they could just run out the clock on this. Where they were like, okay, no one can know how terrible in shape John Fetterman is. So they're like, any format where it becomes wildly apparent that he is not fit to serve, uh, it favors Oz. Well, it's this live is very TV. Ableist. The format is live TV, right? Live TV is the format that, that, that he'd take offense to. Here's how MSNBC characterized it Oz bullies Fetterman for missing debates due to stroke oh my goodness what I, I didn't see that headline last night i mean that is just absolutely atrocious i mean it goes with their whole mo is like they can't win on issues so they just try to shut down any sort of a discussion or an argument where they're like okay clearly there's no substance to fetterman supporting these policies that joe biden and the democrats have put in place that have led this country into such a horrible state so it's unfair to have any discussion at all. It's ableist. It's cruel. And, and it's bullying to be able to have voters see who they want to vote for. It's unbelievable. So it, more MSNBC, the real takeaway from the Oz Fetterman debate, fixating on speech distracts from the looming political emergency. Well, <laughs> okay. If you can't articulate what political position you have, let's look at the fracking answer, for example, or minimum wage or economy or inflation or we're fighting about inflation. All the shit that he talked about was indecipherable. Yeah. But so how is he going to handle the political, that's emergency. political well, emergency? That's when, who you want in charge of an emergency? When, when MSNBC says looming political emergency, what do they mean by that? Do Electing mean, a Republican. Exactly. <laughs> Democrats are about to lose. They certainly don't mean people are paying higher prices. That's the emergency. Here's the hill. I love this. This is one of our favorites, you know, on the Variety program. Republican critics were quick to pounce. Oh, we're pouncing! <laughs> we're pouncing and we're seizing uh, on Fetterman's performance, pointing out that he opened the debate with "Hi, good night, everybody." It's like stop pointing out the fact that he's wildly incapable of serving. <laughs> Don't pounce. That's a pounce move. Why are you pouncing and seizing, you bastards? <laughs> there, this is uh, from Olivia Newsy. Uh, uh, there's no amount of empathy for the for an understanding about Fetterman's health and recovery that changes the fact that this is an absolutely p- 
painful debate to watch. And and she was getting destroyed by Libs in her mentions, being like, "Why are you saying it's painful? Stop being an ableist. Like, <laughs> act like this is totally normal. Don't you don't you understand? Like, you're a journalist. Your job is to help get our people across the finish line, no matter what. Like, that's all it is. That's all the debate that's comes your down job. to at this point. That's your job. Like, the the left is demanding that the press and voters just keep their mouths shut and, and accept that this is a wildly incapable candidate. Just let him get across the finish line and accept it. Yeah, that's that's right. So Charlotte Alter of Time Magazine had this pre, like pre-debate preview mm-hmm. where she did this long tweet string that basically laid out the talking points of the Fetterman campaign trying to diminish expectations. Having having seen this tweet, it was the reason I watched the debate, honestly. Yeah. Because th- they were working so hard to diminish expectations for Fetterman, and I was like, okay, this is going to be really bad. You know, So you know the wildest thing about her tweet thread? Is it was like eight tweets in a row, which, which Holmes is like, yeah, they sound like talkers. The last tweet of hers was this like JPEG she attaches for some reason, and it was from the Fetterman campaign. No, they're talkers, and she just like copy pasted in her own words. In her, own, she was she just copy pasted. So she was like tweet after tweet, which is just talkers. She's a journalist. That's, she just put their talkers. Out. Time Magazine used to just sit atop every coffee table and Jiffy Lubes across the country, <laughs> and now it's basically a Democrat super PAC. It go. is. <laughs> it is. So anyway, she after the debate. I spoke to Fetterman recently, and I expected him to have a very bad night tonight. But he was much, much worse than I expected. <laughs> and much worse than our one-on-one conversation. So what she's doing there is attempting to get back from out yeah, from she, underneath. I, I think she was also sort of ratioed. Like, And I'm always in favor of quote-tweet ratioing journalists to, totally. be, to force them to have better, more informed opinions. Yes. I think it is praxis. It is part of the yes, political yes. work of being a Republican. It is. Yes, it is. It is. And then, I mean, she just got dominated on that. That should be right. a shirt. Ratioing journals is praxis. Yeah. Michael Duncan. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Democrats are asking the same thing post-debate. Why did Fetterman team allow him to take the stage tonight? No one I'm talking to on the left has a good thing to say about what just took place. That's from the uh, Hill reporter Al Weaver. Of course. Like, there's nobody with two eyes, two ears, and the ability to watch a television set last night they could have ever gotten to the point where they're like, this went well. <laughs> this went well. But I mean, you know, shockingly, look, this is the state that we're up against with the Democratic Party. Like the Fetterman campaign released that they raised a million bucks in the three hours after the debate. Think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. If you're donating to what you just heard us talk about in those audio clips is like, that's what I want in my representation. Yeah. You need medical attention yourself. Right. Don't you? You'll give to anything. And I think it shows you that what Republicans are up against in our fight to raise money for our candidates. Yeah. If their people are giving a million dollars to that, they're they're financial kamikaze pilots. Like, that is absurd. It's absurd to give that man money. It's absurd. And, you know, like, it, it really aggravates me as a Republican when we hear, you know, other Republicans being like, yeah, I, you know, I don't really like Blake Masters, but, you know, whatever. Shut up. Just vote for Blake Masters at this point because look at the other side. That's the thing. Look at the other side. I mean, are you kidding me? If you want, look, if you want to drive your economy into the ditch, have absolutely no economic opportunity for your children, have them learn about critical race theory and have no influence in the entire world, then yeah, terrific. Vote for John Fetterman. Vote for John Fetterman because that's a terrific play. Do you care the fact that he actually can't speak 
and then he actually is lying to you about his cognitive capabilities? No, that doesn't matter either. Like, come on, man. Like that, it's they do not have exceptions or allowances for different points of view. Right. It is just all D all the time. Yeah. Right. Which means, in the context of a midterm election, get out and vote. Mm-hmm. Get out and vote. If you're happy about the way things are going, then good for you. But if you're not, you got to vote no matter what. And I don't care if it's your favorite candidate or not. You got to counter this stuff. You really got to counter this. It's your stuff. only chance. It really is. Anyway, I think that's probably enough of that. Another debate that went on last night, which is relevant because we talked about New York and what's happening in this interview uh, uh, today with Lawler, is what's happening on the top of the ticket in the governor's race. Impossible to believe that Republicans could beat Kathy Hochul, in the New York governor, in a statewide race. Well, and now you look at the polls, and and I think you know Lee Zeldin, number one, terrific candidate, absolutely outstanding candidate. Uh, and has done a great job of fixating on it. Who would have thought? You can be a great candidate if you focus on the issue that matters to voters. Right. And in New York State, that issue is crime. And and I think it's especially personal to Lee Zeldin, who's had, what, like multiple attempts on his life out on the campaign trail? Yeah. And, and, and you have uh, every night on the news, basically, in New York, is just like a horror show of... Someone got killed in broad daylight on the streets of New York. Somebody pushed on, Someone you know, pushed off a subway platform. A, uh, pushed off a subway platform, and the person who's squarely responsible for this is Kathy Hochul, the Democrat who's running for governor and who has rubber stamped all these uh, uh, no cash bail initiatives, which are basically just like you know, if if you commit a violent crime. You're let out immediately. Did Smug get that right, McDaniel? McDaniel's in studio today, by the way. Oh, He's, yeah. Here he is. Did he get that right? He got it right? Okay. Hogel. It, yeah, it's Kathy Hogel. We mispronounce it a lot. No, we, you, you guys well, mispronounce it. Well, you know, it. I don't care. So Yeah, well. And, and, and so, like, Lee Zeldin in, in this debate, it was great because he focused on that issue. Every New Yorker is terrified of walking the streets. And, and and he he nailed it to her. Well, he took he took the boots to her, and she actually had no answers whatsoever. Every time the issue of crime came up, she talked about banning guns nationwide. <laughs> no, I mean literally, she's like, I, I wish that the feds would would put a put an end to this. And and the best is so he, and, he, an end to what? Put, pushing people in front of your subways? Yeah, she's the hot dog meme man. She's the fucking worst. Oh, <laughs> she she. So he brings up her policy of no cash bail, which is essentially if you commit a violent crime. You're just let out immediately, which is what she has wanted and put into effect in a result of this crime wave that New York is experiencing. And then he brings that up and she says, I don't know why that's so important. I don't know why that's like... She How doesn't out of touch. Yeah, she, she doesn't. She, that's, that's she's telling truth. you the truth, and she's the truth, you the truth, the truth is the thing that should fucking scare you if you're a voter in the state of of New York. I mean, if you're, if you're, they don't even live in your world. No, they don't care, and they're and they're just like so far removed from all this. That meanwhile, your city's turned to absolute fucking rubble. Right. Right. And you've got people that are in desperate straits, and this lady's walking around like she's doing a great job because she's letting people out of prison. Yeah. Like, come on, man. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, come on. Yeah. How how have we gotten to a point in our debate where this is actually a debate? It's one of the reasons why I feel like this is possible. Like, everything about the numbers, and having done this for a living, you guys know as well as I do, it would tell you it's impossible to win the state of New York. Yeah. But when you take an issue like that, and you're like, one person says, I don't know why this is important to you, the crime issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this is important to you. I mean, it, it, it feels like the Virginia governor's race, uh, where you have 
the Democrats who are so out of touch with understanding an issue. Uh, in Virginia, it was schools. Yeah, right? when Terry McAuliffe in that in that debate was like, "No, I don't think parents should have a voice in it, their child's education." It echoes so much because the central issue here and the Democrat candidate is just like, "I don't get why you care. Like, why does it matter? It's incredible." The New York Post uh, did a great job writing this up. It said uh, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul stunningly said she didn't know why it's important to lock up criminals when confronted by Republican challenger Lee Zeldin over the state's controversial bail reform law during their first and only debate. Um, she says, I don't know why it's so important to you, the incumbent Democrat added. All I know is that we could do more. Uh, uh, and, and then when he asks her, she refuses to answer what she would do to address uh, uh, pay-to-play corruption allegations against her and her administration. This is what happens when you have single-party rule. Yeah, You end up with this corrupt body completely out of touch from what actually matters to voters. And there's only one solution to it, and it's what happened in Virginia. You got to vote the bums out. You got to get them out of there. You got to get them out of there. No question about it. So anyway, as we wrap up the New York section, Lee Zeldin on the program next week, fellas. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. All right. So it's important as we take like inventory of all this, and this is just like the partisan back and forth and nonsense. But why is it that this shit is so important, right? CNN has a piece, believe it or not. Sometimes, quote, sometimes I only eat one meal a day, unquote. Jeez. Older Americans lived on fixed incomes are feeling the squeeze of inflation. Okay. All right. Right? I mean, this is heartbreaking stuff. And it's real, and it's happening everywhere. At a card table there, CNN met with a group of seniors, all fixed income, who spoke uh, about their feelings of the squeeze on steep prices over the last year. Catherine Janes, 81, said that she had turned to her son for financial help. It makes things a little easier, unquote. Everything is really expensive. I mean, dude. It's the worst. Democrats are the worst. We have to win this election. If we don't win this election, things will only get worse. It will only get worse. And and that's why, listen to this. That's why it's not too much to ask to go over to your neighbor's house. You don't know what their political opinion is. And talk to them about it. Talk to them. Like, pop a beer, go sit on their porch, <clears throat> talk to them about the stakes of this thing. Because, I mean, look, we're talking about 80-year-old people here who can't afford a meal. And, and and there is no disconnect. I don't care what they fucking say, these liars, about how it is that this happened. This happened because they're spending trillions upon trillions. And they're trying to do it in an ideological way that shifts away from American energy to importing Chinese batteries, right, and, and all of this nonsense, but they're doing it on purpose, right? Yeah. And 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 they're claiming it's getting better. You got Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, you know, retweeting gas going down somewhere by ten cents, as if it hasn't been up two and a half dollars since Donald Trump was president, right? Right, like he's done you a favor, and we've got seniors eating one meal a day in this country. This is, he's 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 holding a summit at the White House with the Mueller fan fiction Twitter account. Yep. That's Those are the priorities of the White House, the White House chief of staff, and we've got seniors in this country eating one meal a day. I mean, think about that They dis- think they can disconnect. get away with this. They yeah. think they can get away with this. They think that you're not going to pay attention to the fact that you have a trans tw- TikTok star right. giving a closing argument on gender identity to a bunch of people who can't afford groceries. And that's the thing. So meanwhile, this is what's actually happening. From the start, it says, uh, Ron Longhurst cut back on evening socializing, which has been difficult as a single 79-year-old. Day-to-day, Jeez. I stay home more. 
Isolation for seniors is after bad. after what they went through with COVID. Yeah, they can't even afford to go out there. I mean, that's this is hurting people who have a lifetime of giving to this country and earning their keep, and now because of the policies of this White House. They're having to suffer. It's unbelievable. It's so important to go out and vote. It is so important. The media will never hold this White House accountable. It's up to the voters to do it. Yeah, and grab grab grandma and grandpa while you're doing it. I mean, that's a good reminder, right? I mean, get everybody, everybody involved. You never know who has trouble making it to election day, who can read their ballot or not. I mean, if you're if you if anybody needs assistance, you ought to go try to help as best you can because look, this is a thing. We all know that Democrats, if you live in a blue state, they all ushered in ballot harvesting and everything else right. to try to make sure that they could just basically confiscate ballots from like low-income housing projects and vote for them, right? That's what they do. Yes. I, I'm not afraid to say that. That is what they do. Yes. And what we have to do is is actually vote with integrity, vote conscience, but help people vote. 100%. Help help people get their, their voice heard here. Um Look, there's a lot of other stuff going on. This is the one that really grinds my gears with with schools. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I don't even know where to begin with this. Smog, I, like you want to leave this one off? Absolutely. So uh, this is what's wild, and again, it harkens back to Virginia. Uh, this is in Penis says parents aren't in charge of schools. That's a good thing. This is what this is what this is from the Detroit Free Press. This is what journalists are trying to push. Like, think about that. This is the Gretchen Whitmer supporters who are trying to get their people to believe that parents in their state should not have any impact on the education of their own children. 100%. And, and it's key because in that debate that Gretchen Whitmer had, Whitmer had with Tudor Dixon, uh, it was pointed out that Gretchen Whitmer was like the queen of lockdowns. For years, locked down students from attending school Meanwhile, she flew to Florida for a vacation. It's incredible, the audacity of, of Gretchen Whitmer. And then Gretchen Whitmer claims that it was only for three months. Facts prove otherwise. Um, but to get into this article from the Detroit, uh, Detroit Free Press, it says, parents aren't in charge of our public schools, and they shouldn't be. That's not a problem. It's a best practice and one that has prevailed in this country for 100 years. Maybe you believe that parents alone should dictate what goes on in the classrooms their children attend. Nobody's if, making that argument. If so, you're in luck. Dozens of private and uh, parochial schools are in frenzied competition for your tuition check. That's why the money should follow the student. Great article. You know, that's an argument for why the tax dollars should follow an individual student and why these failing schools, which have just turned into like indoctrination camps for the Democratic Party, should be dismantled. It says, but my concern here is public schools which Merriam-Webster defines as free tax-ported schools controlled by a local governmental authority. See, not a word there about moms, dads, or legal guardians. Why are they trying so hard to separate parents from their kids? What's going on? I think one of the things that comes from, uh, one of the positive things that came from the COVID outbreak is when you have you know school being taught on Zoom, and parents see for the first time what the hell is going on in these schools, and it's not reading, writing, and arithmetic. I think it's become very clear that teachers for a very long time, especially their teachers' unions, have enjoyed being able to use schools like, uh-uh, these aren't your kids, they're my kids. Yeah. Well, once again, you get one shot to hold them accountable for all this bullshit. Uh, with that, let's lighten this shit up, guys. Let's play a game. You want to? Well, it's Thursday, and Holmes, you're back, and that means one thing king of the hill yes let's do it let's do it uh smug you have our champion 
correct? Bill Crystal. Bill Crystal is coming back. War now, war forever. Bill Crystal. Who do you have, Holmes? Brainworms. Wow. This is a battle of titans. <laughs> Brainworm Jennifer Rubin. Well, let's go ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. It's time for King of the Hill. In the red corner, fighting out of the Washington Post, looking for a chance to reclaim her crown, Jennifer Brainworms Rubin. And now, in the blue corner, fighting from the pages of Pierre O'Madire's checkbook and current, champion of the world bill war now war forever crystal it's probably my favorite <laughs> it's so good it's probably my favorite also i like the schmidt one the old fat man oh the old fat man because <laughs> you know he's heard it yeah, yeah <laughs> that makes sure. it makes it so good yeah he loves it uh, all okay. right, so Smug, you have a champion. You got to go first. Okay, so this tweet is amazing uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, this comes right before uh, Fetterman, Fetterman's debate, and uh, it also applies a lot to Joe Biden, which is, I mean, it's icing on the cake. This is Bill Crystal. Quote, as the pro-democracy coalition looks ahead to 2024, they should keep this lesson top of mind. Candidates do matter. The stakes are great. This is not the time for putting the nation's future in the hands of those who are not up for the fight. <laughs> Incredible take. I agree. He's Fetterman like, and Biden absolutely shouldn't be running. <laughs> so that was like a subtweet of Fetterman, basically? It was essentially him him getting out over his skis yeah. before Fetterman actually took the debate stage. And, I mean, it applies just as much to Joe Biden, if not more. That's great. I'm going to stay sort of in the debate theme here because it's like, you know, it's a, this is program's been about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Here is Jennifer Brainworms. Uh, I quote, Debates allow D's to present themselves as a legitimate party trying to fashion rational solutions in, to real problems. Meanwhile, ours show that they couldn't care less about the governing business Ours find it hard to conceal that part of an extremist cult. Conservative blogger at the Washington Post. <laughs> the conservative blogger at the Washington Post believes. Believes. After the debates that we've seen, mm -hmm. that it allows D's to present themselves as a legitimate party trying to fashion rational solutions. Is that what you guys heard? I mean, that's that's super microwave take. It's, I mean, you can't oh. compare that to, like, candidates matter. This is not the time for putting the nation's future in the hands of those who are not up for the fight. Incredible. Like, does anyone think Fetterman is up for the fight, let alone let alone Joe Biden? Uh, I, I, just, I just think that the, trying to highlight what Democrats have done here during the course. I mean, recall that J.D. Vance absolutely mowed Ryan's lawn. In that Ohio debate. Yeah. Right? DeSantis did the same thing in Florida to Charlie fucking Christ. Yeah. Right? Masters ate the lunch of Kelly in Arizona. I mean, what debate is she talking about that has allowed Democrats to seem 
reasonable and have solutions. I don't know which one she's pointing to. Fetterman? I don't know. Well, so, you know, that's kind of where I'm coming down on this. And hear me out, basically. In, a, in tweets that are on genre, I have to go to the one that's m- more shameless. And the one that is more shameless is Jennifer Rubin. Crystal was more generic. It was more it was sort of milk toast. So round one, Jennifer Rubin. All right. All right. All right. So now I got a choice to make here. Um, okay. I've got it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going for it, Clark. Going for the knockout? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go for it, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Powerful endorsement of DOJ, colon, quote, I have confidence in the professionals at the Department of Justice, unquote, she said. What she's RTing is a statement uh, from Liz Cheney (laughs) as a powerful endorsement of DOJ. (laughs) Powerful. Powerful. It's, It's powerful. That is, that's incredibly weak. This is going to be great. This is from Bill Crystal, and this is from today. It says, what has happened is we have a two-tier system of standards. We expect real journalists to tell us what they really think, but what we expect from conservative journalists is entirely different. We expect them to act as propagandists for their team. Incredible. <laughs> this is supposed to be a guy who is a conservative, like... How long was this guy allowed to have a voice when he's like, actually, journalists are good and the conservative ones are just propagandists? In and he ran the Weekly Standard, right? Like, this is insane. And he's currently funded by the Democrats' dark money influence network of propagandists. He's like, basically, everything I did before I cashed this check was bad. Now but like, I'm good. But Smug, I think you're actually underselling it. I think you're actually underselling. It's not just the hypocrisy. It's the shamelessness of making the argument when this is precisely what he does now currently for a living. He is a paid propagandist for the left-wing dark money network. It's incredible. That's literally what he does. That's why he tweets still. He's being paid to do that. It's incredible. Smug wins round two. (laughs) Okay. I'm I'm stuck between two. One I love. I just don't know. I I think it plays. Mm. It's my personal favorite. So I'm going to go with it. Go with your heart. Because I just think it's just so perfectly Jennifer Rubin. (laughs) It's just so, it's everything I love about her and more. And it just boils it down. She's quote tweeting a tweet. Oh, wait, hold on. No, what is she quote tweeting? Hold on, hold on. Don't keep our listeners in suspense. I'm I'm so used to being the champion that I I assume that I This guy completely forgot the rules. Let me me press pause on that. I didn't realize that he's... It it may affect my selection. You have to go first. It's fine. I got a winner right here. Okay. Okay, let's hear it. This is Bill Crystal. This is completely insane. And this... Honestly, I think this completely gives away the whole game of this bullshit. It's not merely election denial. It's election subversion. The big lie about the past is and always has been in the service of seizing power in the future. That's what this is all about, folks. Is, is they're like, no, you see, every election is, is one that the Republicans are trying to steal every single time. 
Like, we get Hillary back in the news, and of course, you've got Bill Kristol right there next to her being like, yes. In every election, we'll be on the verge of losing democracy. 100%. Yeah. That is basically their take these days. I mean, it feels like it almost comes out of the White House. Okay, I'm going to go with my gut. Okay. Because it's just so perfect. It's just so perfect, and it's unique to her. And all of you who are listening who appreciate Jennifer Rubin will know exactly what I'm talking about here. She's quote-tweeting a tweet from Cap Action. And Cap Action is posted a video of Biden to camera. Yeah. Saying... (laughs) Uh, Republicans uh, in Congress are doubling down on their commitment to extend Trump tax cuts for the ultra-rich and add $3 trillion to the deficit. That's their plan, deficit. That's yeah, we're plan. concerned about deficit spending now. She writes, here's the closing message, exclamation point. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to quote retweet a cap action at this point. It's not even surprising. Ruben, no, what, no. What is incredible? She thinks the election that's being dominated by inflation, gas prices, crime in the border, and the ace in their hole—they got it up their sleeve. It's the Trump tax cuts. They're going to be permanent, folks. Every voter is going to walk into that polling booth and be like, "You know what? This isn't a referendum on unified Democrat government. It's the previous president. It's the previous president's tax cut. I, I got to vote D. I got it." Jennifer Rubin wins. <laughs> Thank you. What an incredible take! I'm I'm surprised you doubted it. Well, because I had a I had a miraculous brain wormer as a closer, but I just I always get a little nervous about the contrite. It is tweet. I have noticed this about the game. Usually, when people play like a really short tweet, it doesn't play as well. It doesn't play as it well. It doesn't play as well. But with an exclamation point, I felt confident enough. Well, it also it it exposes how stupid and ignorant <laughs> she is about how elections work. And theoretically, that's the thing she writes about every day. She's paid money to be professionally involved in this sort of activity. The suggestion of that tweet is moronic to the level of like a middle school social studies class. <laughs> And that's why I chose it. Tough, but fair. <laughs> Tough, but fair. All right. Uh, so we're going to get to this interview. Uh, one thing I wanted to cover before we got to it is Justice Alito. And you know that uh, that Supreme Court justices very rarely make public opinions, mm-hmm. right? They don't talk amongst themselves. But this was interesting because in Axios, they covered U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel a- a- Alito said Tuesday that a leak of his draft opinion overturning federal protections for abortion made members of the bench thought to be in the majority targets for assassination. Mm -hmm. That is obviously true, Mm -hmm. but also quite amazing to hear from a member of the Supreme Court. Because recall, I mean, they don't have the same sort of Secret Service protection that a president does, right? And it internalizing that and being able to express that probably affirms in some way what the left's goal was all along, right? 
try to intimidate and make these people scared for their lives. I mean, that's and then they will agree with our opinion. The whole purpose that the left leaked this is because they wanted to mount this intimidation program with all these left wing groups involved to make these justices fear for their lives if they didn't change their minds. Well, and we know this because they wrote this playbook during the Trump administration with all the officials that worked in the Trump White House. Yeah. They would accost them, you know, if they were at the park. Yeah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yeah, they show up at dinner and they shout them down at dinner. The the idea was you don't allow them to be out anywhere publicly. Right. Right? Intimidate them into resigning their post. And And that's what they wanted. Right. They high-fived each other when they did this. Yeah, they think it was a great idea. And and so what's wild is, is there's this reporter who's a real piece of garbage over at The Economist. He's their Supreme Court reporter, Stephen Maisie, who, when looking at this, Corey Chiefs is like, huh, I don't really think that's a possibility, except for the fact that a Democrat tried to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh. Right. And when asked why, he said it's because of the opinion. Yeah. I mean, so so when the media is willing to run cover for this, when the left's entire purpose was to try to intimidate upon threat of death, Supreme Court justices to rule their way or die. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. It's incredible. Anyway, it's something to keep an eye on. Obviously, that's just a a travesty. But but anyway, we got to get to the most important part of this, which is our interview with the man who is about to take out Sean Patrick Maloney, the chairman of the Democratic House Campaign Committee, the guy who's in charge of electing House Democrats, he himself is in real jeopardy because of Mike Lawler. I want to welcome to the program a gentleman who is running in probably one of the most high-profile congressional elections of the year. He happens to be running against the DCCC chairman. I can't imagine a better message to send to Democrats than electing Mike Lawler. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks. I appreciate it. Listen, man, I know you're out and uh, hitting the streets, but there's good, good news. Uh, I'm reading everywhere this morning, the ratings change that Cook had on your race, bringing it into a true toss up, which is it's amazing. You like to see it at this time of year. Absolutely. I'd rather be me than him right now. <laughs> I mean, no question. This is a guy. It was Sean Patrick Maloney, a top ally of Nancy Pelosi who, you know, is trying to run a a campaign for every other Democrat in the country. And you may have caught him flat footed in his own district. Yeah, listen, you know, when I got into this race at the end of May, uh, I knew what my pathway was and I knew what we had to do. And, you know, he's been gallivanting across the country and across the globe, raising money for Nancy Pelosi, not focused on this district. 75% of this district is new for him. So he doesn't have the built-in advantages of incumbency. Uh, He pissed off the progressives when he pushed Mondaire Jones, the first openly gay black man out of Congress. Um, And, you know, the reality is people don't know him and those that do don't like him. Yeah, well, there's a lot not to like, right? I mean, there's a lot lot not to like. No question. I mean, he, he basically strikes me as somebody who is sort of an establishment Democrat, as you say, in a lot of ways, kind of takes his marching orders from Nancy Pelosi. But he also doesn't seem to be all that connected to the issues that I, I mean, like every district in this country, but particularly of what's happening in New York. Look, New York right now is dealing with a crime epidemic. We are dealing with record inflation, the highest in 41 years, surging gas prices, a porous southern border, migrants flying into Westchester County Airport, Stewart Airport, 
drugs pouring into our communities, 300 Americans dying a day. Uh, and he's voted lockstep with Pelosi and Biden 100 percent of the time. And people see it and they realize that he's not doing anything to fix the problems that we're dealing with. He's talking about Donald Trump, guns and abortion. And meanwhile, people can't even pay their grocery bills or their rent uh, or their gas bills. And, you know, he's just clueless. I, I mean, it's, it's really mind numbing to watch uh, for a guy that's supposed to be leading the Democratic uh, Party's effort to keep the House. Uh, and he's going to lose on <laughs> November 8th. Uh, as and and he's Nancy Pelosi's campaign manager. I mean, it's it's priceless. It is. It's it's a perfect storm of issues for this cat, right? Because he's, you know, look, he's ostensibly in charge of the messaging and 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 funding of all these camp Democratic campaigns across the country. I think we're all getting to a point where we're, we're seeing that that is not uh, going that well for them, right? But then to have the added embarrassment of the total disconnect from your own district. And then you get a guy like you who's come in, who, who gets it, who's working hard, who's just steadily making progress throughout the course of the campaign. And now a couple of weeks before Election Day, boom, he's got a real problem on his hands. Well, and, and it's even worse than all that, because back in January, Sean Patrick Maloney sent a memo as chair of the DCCC to state Democrats, basically telling them to gerrymander New York's congressional map. And they did. And then they got thrown out in court. The court, uh, a Democrat appointed court of appeals threw, threw it out, said it was gerrymandered and violated the state constitution. Uh, they redrew the maps. And that's why on election day, Republicans are poised to, to have upwards of 12 seats coming out of New York and single handedly wipe out the Democrat majority in Washington and end Nancy Pelosi's reign as speaker. And since, you know, it, it, you think back to 1994 when Republicans defeated the speaker of the House. We're obviously not going to defeat Pelosi, uh, but the next highest ranking Democrat is Sean Patrick Maloney. That's in a competitive race. We're up six points in the polls. Even Cook is now acknowledging that this is a toss up, uh, which, you know, I, I mean, obviously for the national press, they view that as the gold standard. Right. So, you know, this is crumbling beneath him with two weeks to go. And the question really becomes, what is he going to do? Is he going to start shifting funds from the DCCC <laughs> to his own race, <laughs> to his own race and, and throw all of his colleagues under the bus? And what I would say is, yeah, that's exactly what he's going to do because he did it to Mondaire Jones. Right. I was just going to say there's an ample body of work there that would that would give you the impression that he's certainly interested in keeping his own stuff. Right. No question. No question. <laughs> so, Mike, let me let me just ask you, you're in the state assembly, so you're not a, a total rookie. But right. this is obviously a big deal. Um, how did you get into How did you decide you wanted to run for Congress? Because I imagine that when you started formulating plans to run against Sean Patrick Maloney, like you said, you're running against a high ranking Democrat who is ostensibly in charge of campaigns, so should know how to run one. It seems like a like a, you know, a pretty significant climb. And yet you got all in before the polls and everything else suggested it was even possible. Well, this is not my first rodeo for sure. I, uh, I got started working for John McCain when I was in college as an intern on his 2008 presidential election. I went on to work at the state Republican Party uh, under Ed Cox in New York, uh, became executive director of the state party. Uh, so I've been involved in, in politics and government uh, for you know almost 15 years. Uh, and I decided to run two years ago for the state assembly because 
of the issues we were dealing with here in New York and one party rule just destroying our state uh, and, and the issue of cashless bail and the issue of affordability. And I was the only Republican pickup two years ago in a two to one Democratic district, mm. you know, and when I decided to run at the end of May, when these new maps came out by the, the court appointed special master, um, you know, I didn't know for sure what Mondaire Jones was going to do or that Sean Maloney would be in. But I knew what my pathway was. And I and I saw the opportunity to uh, represent the district that I've grown up in, lived in my whole life. My family's been in Rockland County for over 100 years. I know the people of this district and I know what their concerns are because I share them. And knowing that and understanding what the pathway was, I didn't care whether I was running against Mondaire Jones or the chair of the DCCC. I felt if we executed on the plan, we would win. Mm. And with two weeks to go, we're poised to do that. Mm. Uh, and, and I think folks are, are waking up today uh, on a national level, looking at the, the change in the Cook uh, political report uh, ratings and realizing that Sean Maloney is on the verge of being defeated. But one of the things that the Ruthless Variety program absolutely loves about guys like you is that you're living in a blue state, like you said, universal democratic control, right? And you've seen all that that brings, all of the negative. You're talking crime. You mentioned total ignorance of border issues, the economy, which is which is awful. Transformation of much of New York City, obviously, uh, under, under this um, uh, sort of bizarre progressive ideology. And I think it's easy for a lot of us when we live amidst all of that to sort of become dispirited about Republican prospects and conservative governance and everything else. But as you just listed, you've been at this for a long time. You have you've stayed entirely connected to trying to get this done, which you know, look, it's like being a Detroit Lions fan, right? I mean, it's like every year is not going to be a good year, but it's one year, one year it could happen. And it seems like your persistence is really being rewarded here. Well, I, you know, this is uh, a labor of love, if you will. I love New York State and I, and I want to fight for it. And I want to make sure that our folks can afford to live here, that they're living in safe neighborhoods, that there's economic opportunity, that the children are getting a quality education. And as I go across the district, that's what folks are talking about. This isn't about Republican or Democrat. This is about the really bad policies that have been enacted that are hurting middle-class families, the working poor, seniors, veterans, people are pissed. Yeah. And, and let me tell you something. This is the first time in the history of our country that Democrats control everything in Washington, everything in Albany, and everything in New York City all at once. And they have created an absolute mess. And voters see it, they understand it, and they're pissed. And I expect on November 8th in New York, you are going to see a seismic red wave because mm -hmm. people are tired of this. They're tired of, of the nonsensical policies, the woke progressive radicalism that is destroying our economy, that is making people less safe and less free. Yeah, I mean, look, really well said. And I got to imagine, look, we're all watching this from afar. And it does seem like something's happened in, in, in New York. I mean, there's nowhere to run or nowhere to hide for all the people who've been in charge, right? I mean, there's just a demonstrable difference in how people feel about their prospects living in New York. And I, I, I agree. It seems like change is on the horizon. As you're traveling through the district and talking to people, how's it feel? 
from the moment I announced, uh, I felt we were going to win. And the reason was the response I was getting from people. Um, you know, coming from Rockland County, it's 42% of the district. I worked in Westchester County under Rob Astorino, who was the former county executive. I ran his campaign for governor back in 2014. I know the people of this district. I have relationships all across it. And yeah, it we always helps to, to know everybody, right? I mean, that's it, the thing. That it does. Guys in your line of work, I mean, you, you know who owns the corner drugstore. You know who's who first went to here to get your hair cut. I mean, it's like second nature to you in a lot of ways. Look, in a district like this where Joe Biden won by 10 points and Cook rates it as a D plus three, the only way to get there was to have those relationships, to leverage every relationship that I had. And that's what I've done here and built a network and, and, and support uh, across this district. And that's something Sean Maloney just doesn't have. And, you know, he really made a, mis a miscalculation by shifting from the 18th district to the 17th district. And that as I'm out there, whether it's in the Latino community, whether it's in the Haitian community, whether it's in the Orthodox Jewish community, whether I'm talking to law enforcement, people are very upset about what's going on and they they want these issues addressed and it cuts across party line, you know, and that's and that's the response that I've gotten. I, I was in a, a, a meeting the other day with 50 Latino women and I asked them. Over the last month, has anyone had to choose between paying your rent or your mortgage, paying your grocery bill, paying your gas bill, paying your energy bills? Every hand went up. <clears throat> People are, are just struggling. And Sean Maloney, as he's gallivanting to Paris and, and sipping Chardonnay <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, enjoying the sights, uh, you know, people are working two jobs just to try and put food on the table for their children. Yeah. And, and he just doesn't get it. And, and that, there's this basic comes through. There's this basic, and he's not alone on this, but he, he's certainly a, a really good face for it because it just encapsulates everything. There's this basic inauthenticity to what he's selling, right? I mean, he's trying to be representative, as you said, of a very diverse district, economically diverse, everything. And yet, again, puts himself in a position where he's in this ivory tower throughout. Right. I mean, no, incredible. no question. And by the way, if, if you want to be a bipartisan legislator, if you want to be in the mainstream, as he as he tries to suggest he is, then you don't serve as chair of the DCCC <laughs> uh, in, a, in a district that is a swing district. I mean, it, the it's the single just, most partisan job you can have in Washington. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and by the way, I mean, he he exceeded all expectations on making it a partisan job. He interjected the DCCC into Republican primaries. Right. I was going to ask you about millions that. of dollars on them. I mean, it's just crazy. I was going to ask you about this because it's got to cut two ways, right? I mean, so the DS, the DCCC decided for our listeners somewhere along the way that there wasn't enough to run good Democratic campaigns. They had to intercede in Republican campaigns in an attempt what what they thought was to try to prop up weaker candidates, right? So, so they would go in a on behalf of candidates that they swear are the worst people on the face of the planet and will destroy our country and then spend millions of dollars to try to get them elected. Like, how does that cut back home? Well, it, it just exposes him for the cynical partisan hack that he is. And, 
you know, even the press, even people like Chuck Todd and, and Jake Tapper were going, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> like, and, and members of his own party who were on the January 6th committee were like pulling their hair out going, why are you helping elect people who are denying the election? And, and, and he just thought it was like, hey, this is what you do to try and uh, win seats. And I'm like, and I'm looking at it going, no, what you're doing is exposing uh, just how hyperpartisan you really are. And you know, how, how, you know, vacant, uh, uh, of, uh, a, a, a policy and, uh, a, a political philosophy that you have. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pathetic. Yeah, and well, I and think he, he hasn't think. escaped the criticism. I mean, I've noticed, you know, long time New York democratic voices, guys like Howard Wolfson, for example, who've worked with, with, uh, former mayor Bloomberg for years be incensed at the idea that this guy is just playing in Republican primaries. And basically there's no ideological consistency. There's no, it's just pure cynical political stuff there. And it just seems like it perfectly encapsulates sort of who he is. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the smug smirk that he wears uh, permanently, uh, you know, is going to be wiped off his face on November 8th because not only is he going to lose, but, probably a number of these seats that they played in, uh, they're going to lose because right. it, it just folks are focused on the issues and they're very frustrated with the policies that have been enacted. And he's playing politics rather than trying to solve the problems. And, and, and people see it really. See it and, and, and it comes through loud and clear. That's perfectly said, Mike, I got three questions for you that everybody listens to. And these are the ones that really dig deep. Okay. And I'm interested. Yep. Because you've got, you know, a real flavor for your district. I'm wondering if it translates into your last meal on earth. Because if you could plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Well, I, I am a big fan of pizza. I, uh, if, if, if I could only eat one thing uh, left on earth, it would be pizza. And I'd go to Turriello's in Nyack. Uh, it's been going there for over 30 years. Uh, great family uh, and, and great food. I love it. I like you got the spot. Not only what the what you're eating, but the actual restaurant. That's good stuff. <laughs> all right. So think about it this way. If you never got into politics at all, right? And you have this big sort of blue sky in your life where public service wasn't a piece of it, and you could fill it with absolutely anything in the world, what would it be? Probably want to be a a, a, a sports broadcaster. There you go. Yeah. Uh, there you go. I, I I, uh, I grew up loving uh, sports. I I, I love uh, listening to uh, radio and and TV in terms of uh, you know uh, broadcasters and and the presentation. Uh, so you know that would probably be it. Yeah, I caught you on a tough day with the Yankees going down. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I was I was a vendor at Yankee Stadium when I was in college, um, and uh, that was. Definitely one of my uh, most favorite jobs, uh, being able to go watch every game for free. Oh, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, no, it's uh, not, a, not a good day in New York, for sure. You still have the Giants and the Jets. They're both, they're both playing well. So, you know, there's something going on. Well, my, my, Giants, my Giants are looking good, and uh, I keep, uh, I'm loving the fight. I'm loving the fight. Totally. Unexpected, great season. You got to love it. Uh, all right, so third question. And I'll explain it's a little esoteric, but our view is that almost every successful person is motivated by one of two things, either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. 
And it's not that anybody likes losing or, or doesn't like winning. It's basically what motivates you, right? And the, the thrill of victory person is the glass half full optimist, always charging up the hill to a new endeavor. And that's kind of what self-motivates. The agony of defeat person is somebody whose every accomplishment in life they've enjoyed for like 10 seconds, but every defeat that they've had, they carry it around like a backpack. <laughs> and that's what motivates them to keep going. So I'm like, on that range, where do you find yourself? Oh, I'm definitely the thrill of victory. Uh, I don't even worry about the prospect of defeat. I've never, no matter what I've ever done in my life, I've never worried about failing. I think you always learn something from whatever you do, even if you come up short. Uh, but I'm all for the thrill of victory. I don't think there's anything greater than that, especially if you're in politics. Uh, it is it is a sport. And uh, I have uh, always enjoyed uh, fighting to win. Uh, and get the right people into office. And, uh, you know, at this point in my career, I'm excited to, to fight for, you know, what I believe in and, uh, and, and fight to represent the people that I want to serve. Well, you're doing a hell of a job and uh, we're all watching it very closely. Mike Lawler, if we can find you uh, to help out, where do we go? What's your website? Well, People can join us at lawlerforcongress.com. That's lawlerforcongress.com. Or you can go to firemaloney.com if you want to help us defeat the chair of the DCCC and end Nancy Pelosi's reign as speaker once and for all. You know what I like that you did there? You provided us both the thrill of victory people and the agony of defeat people, <laughs> a venue where they can go and take advantage of helping you. I love that. Mike Lawler. Absolutely. <laughs> you're, uh, you're doing a great job. I can't wait. Uh, for your election and and your service here uh, on behalf of your constituents. Thanks. It's uh, it's great to join you guys. You guys are doing a phenomenal job, and uh, always enjoy listening to to the podcast. Ex excellent. Well, we'll talk soon. Good luck out there. Thanks so much. Take care. I think I think we could win this race. It's a Lawler's a very you've very known him for a while. I, I have, and and. So we go way back. Uh, Lawler, if, if there's one way I can describe him, it's that he's been so helpful and such a resource to conservatives in New York State, where it's like the one of the most difficult environments, right? But Lawler, I mean, for me personally, has always been kind of almost like a mentor figure for a lot of, of the Republicans like in Manhattan, where he helped us, right? And he would, even if, if it seemed like your race is, you're in a, in a D plus 30, you know, Lawler will try and help you, right? So the least we can do, I think, at this point is this guy is kicking the hell out of Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the D-Trip. Yeah. He's going to win this race. I think He's so. He's going to win this race. But you got to work hard. Everybody in New York, you got to work hard because there's a bunch of people you think are not going to be with you on this who might be with you. You're going to knock on their door, have a beer, hang out, talk That's about it. it. That's Get it. Get it done. Get it done. Fellas, I think we did it. Outstanding work, gentlemen. And again, you know, just like Holmes said, the red wave is not something that's happening. It's something we're doing. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.